Thanks very much, Hanno and Sonia, for introducing me. I'd like to express my sincere thanks to the Institute here for inviting me and to begin this conversation at the start of the workshop. I'm excited to introduce this research, which is ongoing. Um, it's uh, new research on a topic that some people said couldn't be done. And this is a focus on the administrative divisions in China with a provocative um, introductory topic that there are no cities um, in the context of the transformation of the administrative divisions uh, since the 1980s in China under reform. I'm presenting um, research that's funded by the Australian government. It's had two phases. We're currently in the second one in looking at the ways in which territorial changes of the old historical territories at the meso scale, uh, mostly before, below the province level at the prefecture and the county, have been changed uh, into cities since the 1980s. Part of the way that we think about this is engaged with the research agenda of, of the workshop here and thinking about what is territory, what are cities, what is space in the context of these academic debates over the new spatial theory and ways that a, a large international field of interdisciplinary urban studies is taking up these ideas. I think that one of the main problems that we see is that territory continues to be associated with the national scale, and indeed in Chinese Lingtu, it is the national territory. But that makes actually the administrative more administrative divisions more interesting. And that is to say that the Xinjiang Chuhua in Chinese, the administrative divisions are the subnational territory. And so to work on the administrative divisions is to work on the subnational territory of China. Now, in urban theory, we get the other side of the problem. The territory is the state side, right, and the state market problematic of economic development. Territory is typically associated with the political geography of the state. On the market side and on the economic side is economic agglomeration in terms of defining what is a city. So typically in urban theory, and this is very, very common internationally, not just um, in the West, there is in the interdisciplinary urban studies literature an absolute assumption that cities represent socioeconomic agglomerations. Whether it's Silicon Valley, the Paris Basin, um, northern Italy, you have um, you know, the Tokyo Bay area, you have an urban economic agglomeration. And so what we're doing is working between this kind of state market problematic to look at how cities have been forming in China and in respect of the, the workshop, in relation to the local, because there's a very large field of local China studies in relation to the center, always this binary and this pairing, this center and local. The center, not just the contemporary central government of the Chinese Communist Party bureaucracy, but also even historically in imperial times, the center and local. And that indeed in the governing of China, that governing China, the territorial imperative, it is through the center-local relationships that government takes place. Of course, the local is far too complex to be one thing, one scale, or one type of city, so we're going to break this open. And certainly there's been a spatial administrative hierarchy that many people have given attention to in China studies, um, and yet what we're doing in this project is showing how this has been transforming, that it's not fixed. But, for example, in political studies, even specialty 
studies of politics in China will treat this as a fixed hierarchy of relations between these existing scales. Um, the transformations taking place um, begin to show why that is um, incredibly limiting. The, the contradiction or the, the complexity that, that allows us to kind of pivot off the notion that it's fixed is that this spatial administrative hierarchy has existed for a very long time. Yes, it's stable, but it's actually been subject to change by every historical regime. And so in contemporary China, these changes are about increasing the numbers of cities. And so this is the structural context in which the Chinese government statistics define cities this way. They are at levels of government. They are not defined by population. They are not defined by the size of the economy. Cities are defined by levels of government and their numbers. And this is part of the research design problem. Well, this is apparently a map of provinces in China at the mesoscale, the one we're used to seeing. But one of these new cities is at the provincial level. It's a province, but it's called a city in the international comparative literature. So sometimes uh, in the media and in scholarship, the transformation of cities in, over the past 30 years in China has been referred to as a revolution. This is because there are so many new cities and because urbanization has been far-reaching, rapid, and quite impactful uh, in many areas, former rural areas. But there's this paradoxical transformation taking place because cities have to be defined and established by the government. And so the government will decide which places will become cities and which places will become cities first. So some places may have urbanized, but they're not yet cities. And some places have been re-territorialized as cities, but they're not yet urban. And so this is the reality of changing the territory to establish cities rather than defining them on the basis fundamentally of their economic growth. And so the reality of the change is that not only are cities being established at these, not only at these existing levels of government, which are also historic, but in their precise territory, not as parts of their territories, but that the actual territories have been institutionally redefined as cities at every level. And this is how you get these enormous cities with complex areas of both urban and rural land, and in many of them, most of the land, at least in the 1980s and 90s, was rural. So this is the map. These are the maps at the mesoscale that say more about this transformational process in which the prefectures have become prefecture-level cities. The counties have become county-level cities. Not all of them, not all at once, but obviously starting in the rapidly developing coastal zones and moving inland. Zhou Zhenhe is uh, a historical geographer at Fudan University in Shanghai. And he has been looking at the administrative divisions um, in comparative historic perspective uh, especially back to the Song Dynasty. And he's 
carefully noting the reality that the role of the political system and the power relations in changing these administrative divisions remains quite substantial. So this is the problem. Urban theory doesn't account for this transformational process. And neither um, does the basic outlook on you know, how a city should be defined. There is no consensus on how big a settlement needs to be or what characteristic it needs to have in order for it to be defined as a city or an urban area. We know that there are lots of new ones in China, and in some ways um, the popular perception and the media perception that circulates in the global mediascape, the idea of what, you know, what a city is in China, has been transmitted through the spectacular form of the city, um, and perhaps we can call it an image project, because the planning is at a kind of scale that is not just about neighborhoods and infrastructure systems, but entire districts and regions of different areas of China, strategically located. So that the research challenges of, of trying to explain why and how these changes are taking place really hit this kind of, kind of wall in which one layer of the wall is that there's information on these changes but it's decontextualized. You can say, on this date, this city was established. On this date, this prefecture was changed into a prefecture-level city. You can surmise what the rationale are and because of their locations, because they may be quite significant areas like Suzhou, bordering Shanghai, but many of them, there are particular rationales, particular when you get inside the city and why was a particular county changed to a county-level city, changed to a district. And so there is absolutely no contextual information on this because the records are closed within the party process. They are not public documents. They are not in specialist archives to which anyone has access, even in China. So it remains one of these fundamentally sort of nebu things, internal to the process. It's considered a security issue. It, it, the, I can see the question forming why. It's considered a security issue. And we, you can imagine that, and we could talk about it. And so these are some of the challenges, in addition to the language issue, because there are many specific Chinese terms in this process that use this character, which in English is simply translated to zone. And so the process is elided. And this is what I mean by there are lots of data points, but uh, no explanation. Um, and there are certain kinds of narrative texts, which to me only seem to be a curiosity. It's like, well, how can you abolish an entire district and then merge it so that Pudong, Shanghai's famous Pudong district, doubles in size on one day? I mean, literally from one day to the next. On a day in April in 2009, Pudong doubles in size. This kind of magic of urban development um, is really something. So we turned this into a case. It's a very well-known case. We thought we'd start with it. Um, Shanghai Pudong development, we think it's a zone. Uh, the international political economy suggests it's a zone. But we, we said, OK, we'll take this case and we'll look at it specifically as establishment of administrative divisions and what is an urban district, how is it merged, how is it expanded. 
And we did this case, um, and it was very interesting to talk to the planning office in Shanghai, and they said, yes, Pudong didn't exist. Um, we first uh, took part of this area, and we, we drew it on a map. And we had the power to do that because the central government said we could. And so this was Pudong. And in April 2009, this whole thing came, became Pudong. But there are no maps of this. There are no official maps. This is another part of the problem. So we, the cartographers that we work with, we, we made different sets of maps, and we asked people to look at them and say, just from the map, will the map tell you that Pudong doubled in size in a particular year? And the previous map, no, that didn't work. Uh, this one, after many experiments, this one was agreed upon that people would understand that Pudong doubled in size. And you the implications of this for research become very interesting. I'll just give you one. It's impossible to do statistical time series analysis on Pudong because the statistical base completely changed in one year. But most people don't realize this, that this has happened all over China. Okay, so um, we called this territorial urbanization because they changed the territory to increase the size of the urban district. And the reasons why we went through this, and uh, in light of time, I must move ahead. Um, and so it is in the Chinese constitution that the power to change these is absolutely normal, and it rests with the central government. Um, but however, we don't tend to see this analyzed much in the literature, because they're really subsumed as just sort of urban and regional planning, or zone development. And so all this time of this urban and regional planning and zone development is often eliding all of these transformational changes in the subnational territory. Um, the new area, Pudong New Area, is the new city center. Uh, it has been built. Um, and here's my um, comparative um, <clears throat> shot to show just, if you, you Google search Pudong Administrative Division, Shanghai Pudong New Area, you will get various maps. You will never get an official map, and there will never be any clarity as to the historic formation of this area, why it changed, why it's Shanghai's most important economic district, how the central government supported it, and so on and so forth. Uh, but this one shows up, the one that we did. So. As a kind of large-scale collaborative project in which you're starting with no systematic data, no maps, and no reports, we really had to build from the ground up. So one thing that we did was we started to organize this data in terms of different kinds of changes. What are these changes and what do they mean? So that's just a snapshot. Uh, one colleague um, has organized them in different types of changes to show, for example, abolish district and merge district. I mean, there are different kinds of changes. And so the complexity starts to jump out at you. It's like, oh, this is much more than zone. <laughs> this, is, this is way beyond just zones. Um, here's a set of maps that show uh, the incremental process of changing uh, two cities from the historic rural territories and changing them to cities at levels of government with a territory. And of course, this is how the urbanization process in China unfolded. Because where the state still owns all the urban land, 
that establishing the territories as cities allowed those governments to lease the land for development. And this is how the land became capital and land-based urbanization set off that rapid growth since the 1980s. And so land as state capital has been key here because historically it's owned by collectives, those rural collectives. As soon as the status changes from rural to urban, and these places are re-territorialized as urban, they can lease the land for development. So it's almost as if the process of urban formation is turned around. So land development takes place first. You get massive, massive urban built environments, and this gives you the ghost city. The built environment is constructed before the economic development, the socioeconomic development takes place in that area that would require it. It's the other way around. Now, these changes aren't new, changes to the administrative divisions in China, and this is something I continue to wrestle with because these changes run very deep in the imperial system and have taken place for very specific reasons over history. And that's what Zhou Zhenhe works on, for example. But Shanghai didn't used to be a provincial level city. It used to be a small port in Jiangsu province adjacent to Suzhou, which was the main settlement historically. Uh, and then, for example, in the 1950s, um, here's Shanghai. And then in a year, it was enlarged in association with the Mao-era policy of cities having to be self-sufficient in grain production. So Shanghai got an agricultural hinterland that ran up to the edge of Suzhou, and that's how they became separate. And that change was maintained after 1949. They weren't maintained everywhere. And these are very typical kind of maps. They, they extract a particular city out of its historic context, so we put these locator maps up here to show the situation of Suzhou City. This is a prefecture-level city in which the old historic core of Suzhou is in here, but there are all these large counties that have become part of the prefecture-level city. They have different relationships and different administrative requirements. What we followed was in this case, we looked at what happened in this one year that Wuzhong was made a district of Suzhou and these districts at the center were merged. But the larger takeaway message of this map is that it shows that an urban district varies dramatically. Some urban districts are core, small urban districts that you would expect to find in any city. But these are also urban districts. They're former counties that can become urban districts. So an urban district in a prefecture or provincial level city can be this massive historic county, most of which is rural. And it is be turned into an urban district in this contemporary process of driving urban development across these historic rural areas. So now we have to get very specific about what is an urban district. We could do, spend a lot of time on that alone. So we went through this case and we said, we said a lot of things about trying to understand what is Suzhou and what should we understand about it as 
a city in transformation, the leading prefecture-level city. First, we looked at these cities with extraordinary economic potential. We went to meetings, we talked to party officials, and at a break, in between uh, discussions, um, the officials were talking about their main concern. It had nothing to do with our questions. And their main concern was, we don't like the rank of our city. And so this opens enough another dimension. There's the territory and the dynamics of the territory, but then the cities have a rank in that territorial administrative hierarchy, and the rank is also subject to change. They didn't like their rank. They're the most dynamic, economically productive prefecture-level city, and they thought they should have a higher rank. And so we shifted the focus of the project because even prefectures can have something called deputy provincial-level rank. And to make a long story short, we published a paper on this in Journal of Contemporary China. And the officials gave themselves a promotion. They couldn't get the city more highly ranked, so they affiliated to higher ranking offices to give themselves what they felt their city deserved but wouldn't be allowed by the central government. This is in Journal of Contemporary China published last year. It's called The Political Economy of Rank. Um, and we went through all the details of these districts, why a particular one, um, on these county level uh, units, and why a particular one was made a district, and how in this process we realized that Suzhou had been working with the central government to try to get the city re-ranked as another half level higher, and instead it got this uh, former county level city down here as a district. So Wuzhong, Kunshan, Taizong, Changshu, Zhangjiagang. All of these big ones were former counties. This one was made into a district some years back, this one was made into a district in 2012, and so the Suzhou Urban Core expanded. This is, what is this? This is the economic city. This is the economic core. This is the fiscal regime. The money flows through here from these districts to the center. It's apportioned back out while these cities maintain their own financial arrangements, and some of them are so strong that they want to have financial arrangements directly with the capital at Nanjing. So there's a political economy of governing these cities that's territorial, sort of on the horizontal level. It has to do with rank and hierarchy on a vertical level. And it's critically important to officials because they're appointed to these cities. And their own rank, their own promotions, their own future is tied to the rank of the city. They don't have a rank that's different from the city. Their rank is the rank of the city. So the way they govern the city is fundamentally tied to the fate of its development, right? The, the, the development of the city, the way they govern the city, the outcome of the development of the city is then effectively their promotion review. If the city is governed well and does well, the officials are promoted to another city at maybe a higher level. If you don't govern your city well, you will be demoted and assigned to a city at a lower level. It's a self-interested um, process. So uh, the rank dimension was not something I expected to discover in this work. I expected to be working on cities and looking at urban transformations in a more conventional way. 
But we had to go in this direction to deal with the political side because it was clearly the most important issue in the most economically productive prefecture-level city in China. It was the political economy of rank. Their economic development is so solid they were concerned about their rank. We're also looking at a city nearby called Changzhou. And this is a, a city um, that's um, in the lineup between Shanghai, Suzhou, Wuxi, Changzhou, Suxi, Chang. These are historically interrelated cities around the Lake Tai Basin and the Jiangnan of south of the Yangtze River. It's a very historically significant region in China, maybe one of the most well-known um, past and present. And we're looking at this case, and I'll just whip right through it, um, because actually this city can't grow. This city can't expand. And the reality is that most cities in China at the prefecture level have a situation in which they can't grow. And so part of what we've been looking at in urban research on China, and we kind of in the general sense, we've been looking at Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and Shenzhen and Hong Kong and all of these really dynamic high growth centers of China, now sometimes Chongqing. But, you know, China's got over 600 cities and most of them are not like that. I mean, internationally, we, we barely know the name of, of more than 10, right? Anyone's challenged to come up with a list of 10 cities in China. Changzhou is a very normal city, a historic, very well-known city in China. It's got a very unusual shape. It doesn't look like anything like the, uh, the classic Chicago school model of, you know, growth pole, concentric growth, city growing outward in a circular pattern, one ring after another. It doesn't look anything like that. And so what we're doing is trying to understand what happened with this city and uh, very, very briefly, there's something at stake that actually makes us push back the analytical period. We can't start in the 1980s because the reason for its form, its shape, its problematic urban territories is that in 1949, and this is why so many cities have this problem, they can't grow out because their administrative division of what was the urban core is very small. They're surrounded by these big, strong counties that in some ways, and this is a very interesting issue, they, they refuse to cooperate. So there's a lot of resistance between these administrative divisions. So Changzhou is one of these. And they're struggling still to expand over this Mao-era cut of what was the historic bit of the city. So this would have been the core. This blue area is Wujing County. This is a new zone, but this is only after reform. This whole area surrounded Changzhou City. So they've been struggling bit by bit to push back this county, and they've managed to do it. But this, this is still in the reform period, and so these, these cities that were centers of, they were important industrial production centers. They were centers of armies, like the fourth route army is based in a certain city. Industrial and military sites of the Mao era were centers of cities, but they were small because the Mao era emphasized, the Mao era emphasized the rural and made cities small. Historic counties, agricultural counties were strong. So we've been working with this case 
And we didn't expect to push it back. We expected to focus on cities since the 1980s. And so then we had to go into the politics of rank and we had to start to look back to the Mao period. And so we're actually doing a kind of genealogy of the territory. And there's so much change in this area. And one of the surprises of taking back the history um, to the end of the dynastic period is that there's actually a time period in the early 20th century when Changzhou as a city ceases to exist. It doesn't even exist. It has been abolished for several, for several years. Let me wrap up with Chongqing. Um, this is the new province-level city that was established in 1997. While most of the world was focused on the retrocession of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty, China also established a new city at the province level. And uh, when it was established, there was a lot of uh, kind of exploration of this idea because it, had, it has uh, over 30 million people. And so this is where we come back to the assumptions of what is a city. It's a center of economic growth. It's a center of population growth. Population growth and development of the economy come together in urban economic agglomerations. The sociality of the city and its networks and its productive economies, its generative economies, are at the basis of understandings of urban theory that is based on the development of the capitalist cities um, from Europe to the US and around the world. This study is taking us down to the rural context, below the county level, to the townships and the villages, in which there have been a suite of mergers, uh, eliminating the local rural divisions, eliminating one sub-county level division. So we're looking below the county now, below in that hierarchical term, to see how the urban process is being shaped to urbanize uh, rural areas. And this is where we run into this urban district again, which is predominantly rural. So we went out to do field work in Chongqing. The urban core of Chongqing is the same name as the province level unit, Chongqing. Here's the urban core, uh, where the great rivers come together, the Changjiang and the Jialing. And here's Tongliang, former county, now urban district, which is mostly rural. Yeah. And it has an urban core, and it's at a certain distance from Chongqing, uh, but now there are tunnels through these mountains, so it's connected by a one-and-a-half-hour drive. But you can see some of the same process taking place. It's that territorial urbanization. Shanghai, Pudong, took the next county and merged it and doubled in size. Here what they're doing, they're taking historic towns. This is a historic town, this is a historic town. They change them from rural to urban jurisdictions called Jiadao. It's translated as street, it's really awkward, it's an urban level jurisdiction. And then they fill in, in between them. And so all this will become filled in in a certain um, certain amount of time. So a new urban system and formation. I just wanted to offer a conclusion to go back to the idea of place and historical context and the local. Because what continues to trouble me about these kinds of changes is they're not new. 
and that you, you can study changes to the administrative divisions in China through one dynasty after another. And so if someone like, um, well, Pai has you know, proposed these ideas, is China an empire or a nation state? And in the history of nation states, right, since the Treaty of Westphalia in the 1600s, there's been this assumption that territorial boundaries become more fixed. And certainly the national boundary tends to become fixed. Otherwise, we think of the problem of right, confrontation or conflict, conflict along boundaries. In, in modern world history, the idea of boundary changes is associated with conflict, nation-state conflict. But this diversity of the change is, is <laughs> staggering on one level. So Frederick Mote, a millennium of Chinese urbanism, he says, well, Suzhou, yes, it's, it's one of the oldest, most extraordinary cities in China, center of education, <coughs> learning, high art, high culture in the Chinese sense. Um, but even in Suzhou, one of the most distinctive cities in China, uh, he complains, um, the past is not a, word, a world of monuments, it's a world of words um, because even the monuments have not only been built and rebuilt, they've been relocated several times, even in Suzhou. And so this pagoda, you can still see it today, um, but then you enter this other debate about urban authenticity and the subject kind of shifts away. And this is, this is the complexity of urban studies that well, if we look at this, then the subject will become the built environment and history and the significance of temples and local neighborhoods in China. The subject will shift. Um, and so we're back to the popular impressions of the spectacular built environment and how in China people will critique their own cities and this architecture, which Xi Jinping just announced a couple of years ago, could no longer take place. There will be no more weird architecture in China. Um, but from World Heritage and the World Heritage sites of the central gardens of Suzhou, which are reprodu reproduced uh, all over the world in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you have a copy of this garden, and to the Suzhou New City Center, which is considered one of the most outstanding uh, success stories of urban redevelopment. Um, yes, that's a change to the administrative divisions. The Suzhou New City Center is a change to the administrative divisions. But see, depending on what we look at and what frame of reference we draw, a different set of questions will come into focus. And so what we're doing with this project is shedding light on that mesoscale of change that has literally been left off the map. Um, it's not as though um, people are unaware of this in China. There's, we continue to grapple um, in this project with fundamental questions like, what is a city in China? What is a city in China? Is it a reflection of the party state process in China under reform? Um, is it something that reflects Chinese history of making changes to places in fundamental ways for hundreds of years? Uh, is it the importance of renewing nation in the context of its old territorial frames? 
So um, I must turn it over to my esteemed colleague uh, for a comparative view of Japan. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's going to be very hard for me to really do a, give a comparison here. Of course, some of the questions you raised about what is a city, we can also ask this question in the Japanese case, as I will show. I first want to thank um, Hanno and Sonia for, for having me here as speaker <laughs> and uh, not as... Uh, in my normal role, uh, they took over. I was happy I let them take over. And uh, then they put me at the same time in the role of, you know, well, present something about our project. Um, of course, we have uh, the future of local communities as one of our institute-wide projects here at DIJ. And um, it's not so much about the big cities. Of course, the problems of the non-big cities, of the... Uh, rural areas of the communities in Japan's region are, of course, a reflection of the development of the larger agglomerations, but they also reflect other more general trends. And we also, we are multidisciplinary institutes, so we are approaching this question about the future of local communities in Japan from different perspectives. And I, as an economist, uh, will present you a little bit more of a macroeconomic perspective, and during the conference that uh, will sort of tomorrow start tomorrow really, tomorrow in smaller groups and, and also extend into Saturday, um, people, uh, our uh, research team, they will present their different perspectives on uh, in this project. Um, so I, if you want to hear more, uh, more details, then please attend the conference tomorrow and on Saturday. I cannot do full justice uh, to, uh, of course, uh, to the China uh, presentation. What I, I'm looking is uh, for Japan. Japan is no longer growing, <laughs> and uh, it has been growing. Uh, I will show some slides. But um, for today, um, I think if you look at what is the local in Japan or what are the issues of localities in Japan, then it is closely related to the question of sustainability. To what extent can sort of uh, rural communities be sustained. And uh, so I will start with this uh, topic, the issue of sustainability at the local level. And of course, I first have to say something. What is the local? And I say, well, uh, there are many ways uh, to delineate the local. Um, we heard a lot about the, the issue of administrative boundaries, uh, big issue also in, in, in Japan, actually. Um, in Japan, they are about 1,735 um, so-called municipalities. Shikucho-son. Shi, yeah? Shi is the city. Ku are the special districts. Cho are the towns. And Son are the villages. There are about 800 cities. Shi. And uh, the special districts here in Tokyo, there are 23 and then we have the, the machi, the towns. They are also about uh, 800 or 750, a little bit more, less than the, than the shi. And then we have just about 200 villages. And, and all this adds up, should add up to 1,730 and a bit. So um, political districts are different. 
because uh, they are, I just uh, re recalled, I have to look up the number again, but they are 295. If you look at the, uh, the, the, the lower house, uh, 295 single-member districts. And it's, it's annoying if you want to collect statistics about cities. There are lots of statistics about uh, municipalities, but then you want to correlate this with political uh, voting outcomes or uh, yeah, voting behavior, and how do you match the two different, different delineations So uh, on the local level? Of course, people speak about local economy, and then administrative boundaries don't, don't matter. could be wide or small. There are some areas where people have so-called local currencies, local languages. How do you delineate this? And, of course, people talk about local history, traditions and cultures, so different ways to delineate the local, I think not only in Japan. And all this, of course, is, might be relevant, uh, and I will freely jump between these different uh, delineations. What I'm interested in, I'm as an economist, macro perspective, um, when, you, when you imagine a picture, um, sorry, I didn't prepare that, just came up, but if you want to think, think of a picture of Japan at night, and um, eight o'clock, and, and you see all the lights on, no? then you can see basically a distribution over the space which is defined as Japan, a distribution of resources and people, institutional activities depicted by the lights that are on in these, on this picture. No? And you will see that the, the, what we call cities or uh, They are local concentrations. They are local concentrations in the way these lights are spreading over space. And, of course, there is something, connectivity between. There's connectivity between these nodes, uh, mobility, trade, information exchange. And there is, of course, a lot of interdependence, you know, the spatial uh, division of labor. So um, it's very hard for an economist to look at local units sort of in a separate way because they are part of a larger whole of a whole of a system. And that's also the, the problem. Uh, I use the term sustainability, but I uh, immediately de deconstruct it <laughs> in a way because, uh, of course, sustainability is, is the big normative concept uh, nowadays. And as a normative concept, uh, it implies in different versions economic, ecological well-being, equality, and inclusion. And these are sort of developmental goals. And they apply to nations, they apply to regions, they apply to large cities and small communities. However, we are, whether we look at the earth as a whole or whether we look at small parts, um, we are in an open system. Open system, of course, are influenced from outside. We get all our energy from the sun. Uh, so what does sustainability mean, you know? We depend on the sun. <laughs> the sun will, at some stage, no longer be there, um, of course. So theoretically, in open systems, sustainability is very hard to, to defend as a normative concept. And the same, of course, with uh, subparts in complex systems. Uh, complexity, you know, complex systems develop, uh, or complex systems are, are there because uh, complex systems have a modular structure. Modularity is a way to... Um, to enable the, exist, the development, the evolution of complexity. So complexity has a modular structure, which means that subparts can be exchanged. 
So uh, when you're concerned about the sustainability of a complex system, it doesn't imply the sustainability of the parts because they might need to be exchanged in order to ensure the, the sustainability of the whole system. Yeah? So there is an issue with saying that subparts should be sustainable, might not be, might contradict the sustainability of the whole system. So that, these are some theoretical... So I still think that sustainability is, is an interesting concept, but not as a normative goal, but as an analytical concept, because lots of people are concerned about sustainability. That's what they want to achieve, and even if it's not possible on a, on a larger scale. So uh, local sustainability, as I showed, this interconnectedness, can only be achieved within a sustainable spatial distribution. So if some parts of the, of the system are not sustainable, the distribution will change. This will affect the other parts and their sustainability. So it's really it's complex, it's interdependent. And the issue is here that sustainability in Japan, as I, that's the, the motivation for my title, that say sustainability in Japan is one of the most, if not the most important driver of local politics in Japan, both in large cities as well as in more rural areas. So um, what does it mean, local sustainability in the Japanese context? Um, there are, of course, many issues, but I will concentrate on, on two major trends. One is the regional concentration that has occurred in Japan after, uh, after the war uh, and has, of course, influenced <laughs> regional politics and the discussion about uh, local or regional sustainability. And then, of course, the other big trend is demographics. That's also challenging the sustainability of uh, local of municipalities, or changing the distribution, the spatial distribution of people and resources. And as an outcome or reaction, municipal mergers, so changes in the administrative boundaries. Let us first look at the regional concentration. And here I jump from cities to prefecture level, <laughs> um, because that's, um, um, that's, I think, the most uh, sensi sensible way to depict the concentration in Japan. So we have here Tokyo. Tokyo is surrounded, the, the prefecture of Tokyo is surrounded by Chiba, Saitama and Chiba. And then uh, south is Kanagawa. And then next, if we move uh, west, there's Shizuoka, then comes Aichi, then comes Kyoto, Osaka, Hyogo, Kobe, uh, Hiroshima, Fukuoka. And that's the area, that's the belt where basically most of Japan's economic activity concentrates. So it's also a linked, it's a linked regional area. And depicted by these 2, 4, 5, 6, 10, 11 uh, prefectures of the 47. Uh, Japan has 47 prefectures. And you can see Tokyo in terms of habitable land. Habitable land is about one-third of Japan's total area. I think it's, it's you should use habitable land if you look at concentrations. Um, habitable land, Tokyo has less than 1% of habitable land, but it has 50% of patent uh, registrations. Yeah? And it has 55% of companies, listed companies headquartered in, in Tokyo. It has 10% of the population. 
And when you move on, you can see that uh, if you move here, like 50%, for example, of university students are concentrated in these first five, six prefectures. Yeah? 50% of all people going to university in Japan are just concentrated in five prefectures. Actually, more than one-fourth are in Tokyo. Yeah. And what you can see here is also that the concentration, and that's why I put all these different lines together, the concentration differs. Um, it's highest for, I would say, that well, probably the, the high-value activities, yeah? the high-value activities like patenting, research and development, yeah? or headquarter functions. Headquarter functions. So the dominant, there the concentration is highest. The concentration is lowest, if we don't look at habitable land, is lowest with regard, an interesting distinction, fiscal income and taxable income. So the concentration is higher, taxable income means that these prefectures are rich, but they, there's a redistribution, a redistribution of tax income to the less concentrated regions. Ne? So in that sense, that explains why fiscal income, the income of the municipality, the tax income of the municipality, is less concentrated than actually the taxable income in this area. And um, interesting enough, I mean, for people who are concerned with, with look at Japan, uh, there is this image in Japan that um, the doctors are not evenly distributed uh, in, in, the, in the area. According to this graph, there's not, not such a distortion between the medical doctors, the black line, and the population. So uh, the concentration is, uh, uh, the concentration of the population is more or less equivalent to the concentration of doctors, medical doctors. So at least on a prefectural level, there shouldn't be such a big problem, maybe within prefectures, or maybe the quality of the doctors, yeah. <laughs> or the type of doctors. I don't want to go into detail. So uh, in terms of concentration, you see it's a big issue if on 1%, less than 1% of space, you have, for example, 50% of the highest uh, value-added activities concentrated. And of course, universities, I think this is, these, these are sort of issues that might be discussed later. The other big trend, the other big trend that uh, has been uh, recently more and more influencing um, the, the politics or the discussions about the sustainability of uh, municipalities in Japan, of course, is demographics. And I contrast it with Germany, because Germany is also, at least in Germany, we always say, well, we come next to Japan well, with regard to demographic developments. But you see, um, in Japan, the whole development is much more pronounced. And you see that it's not just decline before that, up until 2000. 10, or more precisely 2012, we had a huge increase. Yeah? And that, of course, also influenced the development of municipalities in Japan and infrastructures. So here, from basically 90, something about 90 million to 128 million, yeah? an increase, 50, 50 years, an increase of 30 million, of one-third, uh, that's enormous. And if nothing else happens, then we will have to see the same decline in the sort of downturn uh, now as well, very rapidly. Germany now is 
more or less stable, you hardly notice it in contrast to Japan, the changes in overall population. If we take this down on a regional level, 75 to 1980, you can see that all prefectures, the population grew. Yeah? In all prefectures. In some prefectures, the, the growth was 10 or more percent in these five years. Five years from 75 to 1980. Yeah? The growth population. All prefectures. The only prefecture where there was no increase in population was Tokyo at this time. Why? Because it was the time when around Tokyo, in Saitama and Chiba, these bad towns were developed. So people moved out of Tokyo because po Tokyo became very expensive. Yeah? So in this short period, that's the only five-year period where Tokyo didn't experience an increase in population. But I depict it because everywhere else there was an increase. And some, some very high, more than 10%, even sort of away from the centers. And, uh, and then the next five-year period, we are in the, middle, in the middle of the next five-year period, these are predictions, The only prefecture that will not experience a decline, according to these estimates, is not Tokyo. It's Shiga. Shiga. Shiga is one of the few prefectures that have no access to the sea. <laughs> it's so enclosed that people maybe cannot move away. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, it's also, I just want to show you that it's not all about Tokyo. No? Tokyo, uh, there are other areas where uh, things... Uh, Sort of a bit counterintuitive. Now let's take this down to the municipal level. And for the last five years where the reliable statistics are available, and you see population change at the municipal level, it's a huge... These are not all the municipalities, but you see here Chiodaku, one of the top almost 20% increase in population. Yeah? Um, and then you have, well, the lowest one, there is one... City probably Mura disappearing, 85% decline in, in five years. <laughs> Maybe from three people or how eight people, only one left or so. Um, and in, but you see a, lot, a large variety. And, uh, and there could be Shi and Mura and Machi. So it's not depending on the size. There's huge variation. And if you put it in this way, um, these... 2010 to 2015, on the aggregate level, population was more or less steady. Yeah? It was more or less steady. But you see that half municipalities experienced a decline, half municipalities experienced a dec an increase. Yeah? And um, demographics is not only about shrinking populations, also about aging populations. And here again, in comparison to Germany, the development in Japan is more pronounced, especially it's faster. It's the speed. No? The speed is also the issue. And um, <clears throat> so you see by 2060, if predictions are, are true, prove true, then every fourth person in Japan will be 75 years or older. Every fourth person, 75 years or older. And uh, very soon, uh, 2040, we'll have... Um, 35% of Japanese 65 and older. So that's a dramatic development. And if you break it down at the municipal level, again, we see variety. We see a large variation. We have municipalities, not even the big centers. This is uh, Ogasawara, Mura, 
uh, Chitose in, Ho in Hokkaido, the, the share of 65 plus population below 20%. Mm -hmm. and, and then we have other places where it reaches 60% or well above uh, 50%. No? If you go to this line, about half, half the municipalities now have a share of 30% plus. And this shows more clearly here. So here you see the percentage. So up to 20%, up to 30%, up to 40%, up to 50%, and 50% and more. That's the share, or not, yeah, the number, the frequency of municipalities with these shares of elderly. So how is the, so one, one simple reaction is when municipalities die or become financially weak. I mean, there is a vicious circle involved, of course, that um, um, young people move away. Why they move away? We saw it, the high concentration of universities. Yeah? So the first motive to move away is for young people to go and get an education in Tokyo or some other of these central places with good universities. And then the next step is they stay there because that's also where the big companies are. So they don't come back. And if they don't come back, then the local, the local business doesn't have people to hire. Yeah? They doesn't get new people or they don't have the people to, to keep sort of pace with competition, the young people. And, and so business closes down. Then employment opportunities go, go down. Then uh, the fiscal condition worsens. And then the infrastructure uh, decays, and so on and so on. So there's a kind of vicious uh, uh, circle that we see here. And one reaction, possible reaction, is municipal mergers. But municipal mergers in Japan have a double history. A double history. That's from, that's uh, sort of the, the municipalities, the number of municipalities, and the population, and the average number of uh, people living in municipalities from 9 to 20 to 2010. And you see that there was a big Showa merger wave, the so-called Showa merger wave, where the number of the number of municipalities had been 12,000 in 1920, and after the war, in 1950, it still had been more than 10,000. And then, in the 1950s, in the, when the high growth period started and when population was actually growing, yeah, and I showed, I mean, you can see that all areas benefited from the growth. In this growth period, communities were merged. Obviously, the motive of merging was very different from the motive that we see later here, the so-called Heisei merger wave, which were sort of, after the Showa merger, we had a more or less constant number of 3,000 500 or so uh, municipalities in Japan. And then the Heisei merger wave in the 2000s reduced this number to the now present number of 1,730 something. Yeah? So uh, that also, of course, it's, if you want to do statistics, you know, yeah, it's a bit cumbersome to, to collect the data for those merged uh, communities, merged municipalities. But of course, the Heisei merger. Wave was there are a few exceptions. You might know the uh, uh, the Saitamashi. Ne? Saitamashi was created out of two large, two large uh, sister, uh, two large cities. Um, 
Omiya and Uraba ne, formed Saitamashi. That's definitely not failing <laughs> municipalities. But Ida, uh, the case already presented here, became a city of 100,000. And it's not actually, that's the question, it's not actually a city. It's more like a county, or in Germany you would say Landkreis, ne, because it consists of, of different small uh, entities that have their own history, that have their own sort of communities, and but now administratively they are considered as a city. So, uh, but they're not the city that you expect when you go to Ida and you arrive there and you think, okay, Ida has hundred thousand inhabitants. You get out of the station and you see a small city. <laughs> um, okay, um, we still need some time to discuss, and I. Basically, you want to use this sort of input um, as uh, sort of as as a way to not only start discussions here, but maybe also for the next two days, because I think that uh, this is the framework when we discuss the future of local communities in Japan. Now, these two aspects: the concentration, high concentration, and of course the demographics. So this is what policymakers at all administrative levels, be it the central state, the prefectural level, or the municipal level, have to confront. There are two interrelated challenges, the high regional concentration and, of course, the aging and decline of the population at the local level. But, as I also mentioned, there are large variations across localities, and that makes it interesting for us to look at. Why? What causes these differences? You can even, if you look at fertility rates, fertility rates as well, are, there's a wide variety so some communities have a fertility rate of more than two, so they would be sort of sustainable in a way if the people were not moving away. But in a way, it's that these, these municipalities or these local areas, they supply the young people, the population for the big cities because in the big cities, you have the single households. You don't have the families who have the kids. Yeah? So in a way, there's a sort of division of labor between rural Japan and the agglomerations in terms of providing new people. Yeah? And um, so what would a good policy look like uh, facing in face of, uh, of these challenges? Uh, what would be adequate instruments and measures? There have been a lot of attempts in Japan over basically since the 1960s when the concentration became an issue. A lot of regional policy measures undertaken, not so successful, and, and then the question also is what would be the adequate governance structure, because um, of course we have these mergers, but there are even more fundamental discussions about decentralizing Japan, creating a federal state, and with the hope that maybe within a federal structure that uh, local communities would have a brighter future than what they face, many of them face now. Well, thank you very much, and now we'll be able to discuss. <laughs>